please, to Matthew chapter 14. And I'd also like you to find Mark chapter 6, if you would, and hold on to Mark 6, because we're going to look at some scripture there in just a moment. These are two passages that tell the same story. And what I'm going to do today is a little bit unusual. I'm going to tell you a story. Now, we've we're studying verse by verse, and we've come to a place in the Scripture that really requires some, a little extra explanation to find out what it all means, what it's all about. And so I'm going to tell you a story today. And, and I don't often tell stories in preaching, so this is a little bit unique for you. Uh, but it's a Bible story, and that's all right. And so we're going to look at it in Matthew chapter 14. Now, a few weeks ago, I was reading an article that explained a problem that all of us are too familiar with, I think. And that is how that we have become tethered to smartphones and handheld devices and tablets to the point that we really, it just seems like we can't do without them. And, and always one of those things is seen in our hands. It, it's nearly impossible for us to carry on a normal conversation with someone unless at the same time they're sending out emails or tweeting something or posting something that they're doing on Facebook. And I don't know, that might be a, a normal conversation today, and people just expect that you're going to do that. My wife often complains about it as far as I'm concerned. We go out to dinner, and my companion is my phone instead of her. And uh, she doesn't like that very well. I, I also find that we're driven by a lack of modesty today. And the instant news that's available. I mean, people like to put out information about what they're doing all the time. We put out things, or some people do, some stuff that you really would, before you would have kept quiet. You, you really wouldn't have talked about those things. But it seems like the more body and salacious that news is, even if it's news that we tell on ourselves, that's something that people want to do. Just put it out there on Facebook for everybody to see. Uh, it used to be that we didn't like people keeping an eye on us. We didn't like anybody knowing what we're doing every minute of the day, especially if we're doing something that's wrong. Now, today it's tabloid news, and celebrities think that any publicity, even if it's bad publicity, that's all right because it keeps their name out there. And what we have today is Facebook so that we have our own little tabloid so we can just keep our names out there in front of people all of the time. Well, the story that we have here in Matthew chapter 14 is about a ruler who lived a very immoral, sensuous lifestyle, and he was none too happy when he was confronted, when he was being tracked by someone, when he was called on his sin, when, he was, uh, when someone told him that he was doing the wrong thing, that everybody is accountable to God for the way that they live. He didn't like it. Scripture says that the law of God is written on our hearts, and when we violate God's law, there ought to be a sense of guilt. There ought to be a sense of guilt when we've done something against God, and when someone points that out, what we usually do, when you've sinned against God, when that gets pointed out, what most people do, instead of reacting to that guilt and confessing their sin and going to God with shame and repentance, they do the other thing. They get rid of the irritant, rather than to get rid of the sin. They don't want to deal with the person who tells them that they're a sinner. Now, if you look here in the first verses of chapter 14, we're going to read here about an irritating preacher and ones that were the people that were so irritated with what he had to say. In Matthew 14, beginning in verse number 1, if you'd stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read uh, a few verses here down to verse number 13. 
Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse number 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. For Herod had laid hold on John and brought him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. Father, thank you for your word today. Open up our hearts to the message that you'd have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I said, I'm going to tell you a story. And as you read through, or we've just read through these 13 verses in Matthew chapter 14, you see that there are several characters that are involved. Now, in the big picture, what Matthew is doing here is telling us the story of Jesus. Now, the events that we find here are, in this chapter, not in historical sequence, but rather this is a flashback to something that had happened previously. It's a passage about the death of John the Baptist, and it had occurred about a year earlier, and when Herod had become aware of Jesus' preaching and all the great miracles that Jesus was doing, he was convinced that this was John the Baptist who had risen from the dead. And the reason that he assumed that was because of his guilt. He was the one who had put John to death, and he believed that John had now come back. Even though in Herod's understanding of things and understanding of spiritual matters, he did not really believe at all in spirits or believe in the resurrection of the dead. I want to start today by explaining to you the cast of characters that we find in this story. I mean, there, there are several people that are mentioned in this text, and really to understand it, we, we need to understand something of the background of these people. And when we're finished with this, when I'm finished telling you this story today, there will probably be many of you who say, oh, I've heard that story before. I saw it on As the World Turns. It's a, it's a great soap opera here, because if there ever was a twisting, turning soap opera in the lives of these people involved in this story, this would be it. Now, the first character that we need to talk about here is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is the one who announced the arrival of the Messiah. And, of course, we're very familiar with John the Baptist by now as we've studied through the Gospel of Matthew. He was introduced in chapter number 3 as that unusual prophet that lived out in the desert, and he's the one that ate grasshoppers and wild honey. And all of us are experienced with that. We know if you're going to eat grasshoppers, you need some kind of seasoning to make them better. So you put honey on your grasshoppers to eat them. But John was also that prophet that came in the spirit, spirit and the power of Elijah. 
He was the last Old Testament prophet, and he's the one who had the distinct privilege of telling the people that the Messiah had come. Now, as you read the Old Testament, you find the prophets of the Old Testament saying over and over again, and for centuries they were saying, the Messiah is coming, the one who is the Christ, the one who is the great ruler, the one who will rule the nation of Israel again and rule the world, this Christ is coming. And these Old Testament prophets preached that over and over again. But John the Baptist happened to be the one who was alive at the time that Jesus came. And so he had the distinct privilege of being the prophet who said, the Messiah is here, the Christ is here. And so he is the forerunner of Christ. He's the one who announced his arrival. In chapter 3, he's the one who baptized Jesus and inaugurated him into his three years of personal ministry. And John was a fiery preacher, a a man that was just unwilling to yield to anyone's popular opinions or, or the opinions of the day. And he told people that if they were going to enter into the kingdom of God, that what they needed to do was to repent of their sins, get right with God, and the only way they would ever see God is if they had a relationship with him. And so he preached repentance to the common people. And he also preached it to the religious, self-righteous religious leaders of the day. And in this text, we find John the Baptist preaching even to the rulers of his day, giving them the very same message, they must repent of their sins. Now, John appeared again in chapter 11, and this was the time in which John was put into prison. As I mentioned uh, a moment ago, this was about a year earlier. And in, in this text, we find the cause for John's imprisonment. In the 11th chapter of Matthew, this is what Jesus said about John. He said, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Jesus had great words to say about this preacher. He he was a great prophet. He was a great preacher. The world had never seen anybody like John the Baptist before. But this was a preacher that got into trouble with his preaching. And the reason he was in trouble was because he preached against the wrong person's sin. He preached against the king. And the king was none too happy about that. And so he seized John and put him into the dungeon. It was a dungeon at the desert fortress of Machaerus. And there he held John in that deep, dark judgment because he dared to speak out against the sins of the king. Now, the next person that we find in the story is the one who put John in prison, and that's Herod Antipas. And he was the one who was the ruler of Galilee. Now, if you do very much reading of Scripture, and I hope that you do, it's, it's often hard to figure out which Herod in Scripture is which. I mean, there are several Herods that are mentioned in the Scripture, and it might be helpful for you to remember this, that all of the Herods that you find in Scripture are all related to one another. They're all in the same family. When we started the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 2, there was Herod the Great. He was the one who was the ruler, the king, when Jesus was born. And he is the one who tried to kill Jesus when he was just a baby. And he was the one who was involved with the slaughter of the innocents, killing all the babies that were two years old and under. And all the other Herods that you find in Scripture are descended from this man, from Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great died sometime later, a short time later, and uh, Joseph and Mary had taken Jesus down into Egypt there to be saved from the king's command that the babies would be killed. And so after he died, Joseph and Mary went back into Israel, and they went to Nazareth, 
And they lived there. That was their former home. And that's why Jesus is called a Nazarene and not a Bethlehemite. Even though he was born in Bethlehem, he lived and he grew up in Nazareth. Well, when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was split in parts and was transferred to different numbers, different ones of his sons. Now, Herod had many sons by different women, had many different wives and many different sons. And Herod thought that his sons were rivals to his throne, and so he started to kill his sons. But he died before he could kill them all. And so when he died, his kingdom was split up between three of his sons, Archelaus, Philip, and this Herod Antipas that we read about here. And this son, Herod Antipas, is the one who became the ruler in Galilee. Now the third person in this story is Herodias. And on your outline today, I've called her a wife, but whose wife was she? Well, this is where this story begins to heat up a little bit and the soap opera begins because Herodias is introduced in verse number 3 as the wife of Herod's brother, Philip. And this is not the Philip that I mentioned just a moment ago who uh, the kingdom was split up and he got part of it. It's not that Philip, but this is another brother, Philip. Uh, Another brother, a half-brother of Herod's, who had, I guess you would say he had retired from government service. He was tired of being in the government, and so he became an influential private citizen in Rome. And he was married to this woman named Herodias. And for reasons I won't go into now, Herod Antipas decided that he was going to go to Rome and to visit his brother, his half-brother Philip. And when he went there, he met and he fell in love with his half-brother's wife, or I should say he fell in lust with Herodias. Now, the only problem was that Herod was married to someone else. He was married to uh, the daughter of Aretas, who was the king of the Nabataeans. And Herodias, of course, was married to Philip. And this Herodias was a very wicked woman that lusted for power, and she was a woman that used her wiles and used her femininity, if I can get that out right, used all of that to get what she wanted. Now, Philip was a man who had no power. He, he was now a private citizen, and Herodias thirsted for power. And so when she met Herod, Herod had a little bit of power. And so she hit it off with him, and Herod and Herodias decided to run off together. And Herod would divorce his wife. Herodias would divorce her husband. And then those two would get married, and they would diddy-bop on down to Tiberias and Galilee and live there. Now, to complicate the story a little bit more, and to add to this soap opera effect, Herodias was the daughter of another of Herod's brothers. So if you're keeping tabs on this, this means that Herodias was the granddaughter of Herod the Great, which makes Herod Antipas her uncle. And so Herod Antipas married his niece. And so on top of divorce and all these marriages and all these things that are going on, Herod marries his niece, and now we've got sins on top of sins, and add to that the sin of incest as well. These are things that you just can't make up. This is stuff that happened here in this story, and it's all important to understand why John the Baptist was killed. Now we have a fourth character in our story, and that's Salome. And we call her the dirty little damsel. And I'm going to save her for a little bit later. 
Just keep her name in mind. So we have all this wickedness that's going on. And in the middle of all of this is this fiery preacher, John the Baptist. And he's thundering out against sin. He's pointing out the wickedness of people. And in his crosshairs were the rulers, Herod and Herodias, who had committed these terrible sins against God. Now next we see, number two, is a godly testimony versus an ungodly temptress. Now Herodias was a wicked, scheming Jezebel. Now those of you that have read about Jezebel in the Old Testament know what a wicked woman that she was. And, and Herodias, or Jezebel, I don't think was any, uh, Jezebel was any worse than Herodias was. She was a very wicked woman. She was a temptress. And just to put it to you sort of simply, in language that you understand, she was a woman that was willing to sleep her way to the top if she had to. It didn't matter to her. Now, this, this Herodian family, from the top to the bottom, was one debauched, despicable, ungodly group. Incest and divorce and murder, adultery, write it all down to their account, and you just scratch the surface of how wicked these people really were. Herodias was a controlling woman. She was a very beautiful woman. And Herod was sorry. He was henpecked. Maybe you know what that word means anymore. He was a henpecked husband, and this woman, Herodias, just ran all over him and told him what to do all of the time. Now, in the third verse, we see the beginning of the end of John the Baptist, who is the godly preacher. It says, For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. Now, you'll notice there in that scripture that the Holy Spirit does not call Herodias the the wife of Herod. Instead, it refers to her as his brother Philip's wife, which tells us that God did not recognize this marriage. And you might remember that because in this divorce society in which we live, where it's so common, where men run off with other men's wives and women run off with other women's husbands, God doesn't recognize that as marriage. That's wicked sinfulness that needs to be repented of. That's plain Bible. This is what Scripture says. Now, in verse number 4, we see what John the Baptist had to say about it. Verse 4 says, For John said unto him, that is to Herod, It's not lawful for thee to have her. And here is the problem. John is preaching against this sin. John wasn't afraid to preach against anybody's sin. It didn't matter whose it was. And so if the leader is guilty and his wife is guilty, they get preached against just like everybody else. And you have to know that when John the Baptist stood up and he said this to Herod and to Herodias and he kept making this this issue known before the people, that he was taking a very risky step. Preaching against the ruler was not the thing that you wanted to do if you wanted to keep your head. And so John kept preaching about it. It was a risky topic because he was dealing with one of the cruelest families that the world has ever seen. Now, when you think about what goes on in the world today and you see what happens in the news in the Middle East where these people that will will take somebody and kidnap them and cut their head off in a heartbeat, that's the kind of people that that Herod and Herodias were. The whole family was like that. They had no regard at all for human life. And so if you crossed Herod and Herodias, you were a dead man. And John the Baptist crossed wicked Herod. And more importantly, he crossed Herodias. Now the indication is in the original language here that John didn't just talk about this once. 
He didn't just say, you know something, there's a little bit of sin going over there in the, in the palace. The king and this woman that he's taken to be his wife, they've committed some sin. No, that's not what the scripture indicates. The original language means that John would not shut up about it. He just kept preaching about it. He kept it in front of the people. Everywhere he went, he was preaching about the sins of the ruler and how they needed to repent of that and, and how people were following this wicked man. And so John the Baptist became what you'd call a burr under Herodias' saddle. She couldn't move without hearing what John the Baptist had to say. He was telling the people, the king has committed a great sin. He's guilty of incest. He's guilty of adultery. He's guilty of divorce. He's guilty of blaspheming the name of God. And that was John's character. He was a relentless preacher who would not stop preaching about sin. And John wouldn't be welcome in our churches today. He wouldn't be welcome in our society today because what people don't like is preachers that preach against sin. If it's your sin, they don't like being preached against. And so preachers draw back. They know that people feel this way, and so they stop preaching about sin. I mean, when was the last time that you went somewhere and heard a, heard a sermon about sexual sin? When's the last time you heard a preacher stand up and say that it's wrong for people to have premarital sex, teenagers to have sex, or a preacher who said that it's, that it's wrong for people to get divorced, or a preacher who said that you're not supposed to run off with somebody else's wife? They don't say that anymore because our churches have become filled up with those kinds of people and they don't want to hear about sin being preached about. And so sin doesn't matter anymore. It's just kind of put off as being a mistake It's just a mistake that we make. So you run off with somebody's husband or wife, it really doesn't matter. Well, it mattered to John, and it mattered to him because it matters to God. Now, I don't have time to read it now, but you can write down Leviticus 18.16 and Leviticus 20.21, and there it tells you what God thinks about these, these terrible sins that people commit. And I just have to add this this morning, too, and it's sad in this past week that we had one of the preachers in, in the Independent Baptist Fundamental Movement who was guilty, caught guilty, of, of having a relationship with a 16-year-old girl, one of the most famous preachers in America. So what are you supposed to do anymore? I mean, who are, some peop- who are people going to listen to anymore? Even the leaders, you can't get them to do what's right. Well, these things, as I said, mattered to John the Baptist. Herod and Herodias had broken God's commandment and the righteous servant of God preached against it and he said, it's not lawful for you to have her. And Herodias became furious about that and so she prodded Herod to arrest John the Baptist and put him in the dungeon and that's what Herod did. Now thirdly, there is great courage versus a guilty conscience. Now John the Baptist and Herod were two vastly different characters. I mean, if you were to remove religion from the picture here, you have one person who's not worthy to be on the same planet with the other one. John the Baptist was a man who was stout, a man who stood up for what he believed. He was a man who had a backbone of steel. He didn't have anything in the way of wealth as far as the world is concerned, but he did have everything that makes a man a man. But Herod was different from that. Herod was spineless. He would never stand up to anybody. You know, I think about that centurion in Matthew chapter 8 that was talking to Jesus one day, and he was explaining to Jesus his authority. And he said to Jesus, I say unto this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. 
And I thought about that. And you, you can just insert Herodias into the place of that centurion because she said to Herod, go. And Herod went. Come here, Herod. And Herod came. Do this, Herod. And Herod did it. Herod could not stand up to her. And he couldn't stand up to the people. So furious, Herodias, after she heard what John the Baptist was preaching, she said, arrest him. And so that's what Herod did. And if you'll look at verse number 5, it says, And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Now, Herod wanted to kill John the Baptist as well, but he feared the multitude. Herodias wanted John's head taken off right at that moment. Now, if you go over to the Gospel of Mark, where I told you to keep your finger there for just a minute, in this sixth chapter, it says in the 18th verse, For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife, Therefore, Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. So both of them went to kill him. Herodias, the stronger of the two, I suppose, and she couldn't do anything. She wanted Herod, too, to do it. And Herod, being this little despot that he was, who had a little bit of authority, wanted to kill him, but he had a problem. And that was the people regarded John the Baptist as a prophet. And what Herod could not do was risk an uproar. He can't have an insurrection among the people. And you have to understand that about, about Rome. Whenever they conquered a territory, they were about making peace. They didn't want these little fires growing and people rising up against the rulers because that meant they would have to send an army out to, to take care of all these little insurrections. So they pretty much appeased the people as much as they could. So the way for Herod to lose his authority, to lose the, the spot of ruling that he had, was to allow things like insurrections. And so he would not kill John the Baptist because he feared what would happen with the people and with Rome. So he wouldn't go that far. He didn't kill him just yet. Now, it also says in Mark, in the 20th verse, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and a holy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Now, if you're looking at that closely, you see Herod is afraid of everybody. He's afraid of Herodias. He's afraid of the people. He's afraid of Rome. And now we see he's afraid of John. He recognized that John was a prophet. He listened to what John had to say, and he realized that John is not just some crazy guy out there that's shouting in the wilderness, that John is telling the truth of what God says, the truth of what God's word is. And so it appears that in some way, Herod began to respond to John. And Herod may have been like another Herod in this family. That was Herod Agrippa II. And he was the one that the Apostle Paul talked to. And Paul stood before him. And Herod Agrippa said, Almost you persuade me to be a Christian. And I think he said that probably in a mocking way. Like, with so few words, do you expect that you can make me a Christian? But Herod Agrippa II listened intently to what Paul had to say. And so I think this is what Herod Antipas was doing. He was listening to what John had to say. And as he listened... He knew the truth, but he didn't respond to the truth. He recognized that he'd sinned, but he wasn't ignorant of God's word. And I'll explain that more in just a moment. And instead of responding with repentance like he should have, he responded in a different way. He listened for a while until that guilty conscience started to bother him. And as I said in the beginning of the message, what most people do with the guilty conscience is not to get rid of their sin, but is to get rid of the thing that irritates them. Well, behind the scenes, there's still the scheming temptress Herodias. 
And she had a plan to kill John the Baptist and do it any way that she could. So she's biding her time. She's just waiting for the right time. And the right time came at Herod's birthday. Her opportunity came on his birthday. Now go to Mark 6 again. again, And we'll read how Mark relates this portion of the story. And this is where we bring in this other character, Salome, the dirty little damsel. And she's the one who is the daughter of Herodias. Now, the occasion is Herod's birthday party. Salome was sent in to dance at this birthday party, which really amounts to what we would call today a stag party. Now, the raging libido of these bunch of drunken men that are at this party, that was not an unusual thing. This was the kind of parties that the Romans held. They were very wicked people, so it wasn't unusual for them to get drunk and to bring out the dancing girls But what was so unusual about this party is that the one who came to dance was the daughter of of the ruler's wife. That's not something that you see. That's quite unusual. Usually they'd have the slave girls come and they would do a half-naked dance or completely naked dance and they became the objects of these men's desires. In the 21st verse it says then, And when a convenient day was come, that is, a convenient time to kill John the Baptist, and when a convenient day was come, that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee. And when the daughter of said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod, and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And here is just another example of how depraved that these people were. Herodias was so desperate to see John killed that she sent her own daughter to dance this provocative dance, probably a half-naked dance for all of these drunken men. But it gets worse, and the soap opera keeps compounding because Herod became turned on by that. This young girl danced, and this young girl is his stepdaughter, And he started to have all kinds of lustful thoughts in his mind. Now, you go back through all these interpersonal relationships, you'll also find out that Herod was blood-related to Salome. So now you can throw in more incest, and you can throw in some pedophilia as well. So Herod became aroused by the dance, and he blurted out a rash vow to Salome, and he said to her, you ask me anything that you want, and I'll give it to you. Scholars agree that that was common at that time that when these kind of parties took place that the king would offer some kind of a favor for those that pleased him and so unbeknownst to Herod is that Herodias had a plan here and she knew that Herod was going to grant something to Herodias after this dance now in verse 24 it says and she went forth that's Salome and said unto her mother what shall I ask and she said the head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger, or as we might say on a serving platter, the head of John the Baptist. So Herodias' plan worked, and she found her way to kill John the Baptist. Now Herod, being this spineless, gutless good for nothing that he was, was afraid to back down on his vow. Even though he knew he was caught, he wouldn't back down on the vow because he was more concerned about saving face with his friends. He was more concerned about that than doing the manly thing, to man up and do the right thing. And and besides that, what's he going to do if he refuses? Now he's got Herodias to contend with. And she nagged him all the time. 
And so the best thing to do is, who, who's worse, the, the wrath of Herodias or the wrath of the people? And he chose the wrath of the people instead of her. Well, he did the only thing a spineless jellyfish could do. He went with the tide, and he ordered John's death. Verse 27 of Mark 6. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. Now you think about this for a minute. What do teenage girls really want? I'm afraid to even think about it. I don't, want to, I don't even think about that. But I'm sure they don't want this. They don't want a severed head. Not many teenage girls would want a severed head, I don't think, unless maybe Justin Bieber's head to put in the refrigerator and they could do whatever they're going to do with that. But th- this girl didn't want John the Baptist's head, but her mother said, ask for it. So she asked for it, and Herod cut off John the Baptist's head, and she brought it to her mother. And she had this kind of freaky fascination with it. Herodias, I mean, she was kind of a weird person. She was so delighted at having the head of John the Baptist that it said that just for spite, she took a stick pen and drove it through his tongue. And I suppose she kept the head up somewhere for a while just so she could gloat over the fact that she got vengeance over her enemy. Now, folks, this is crazy stuff, isn't it? But this is what people do when they hate God and his people. And you might not think that people really do hate God. But the Bible says that they do. The Bible says that all of us are God's enemies. And if we had been there at the crucifixion, we would have been the ones that would, say, crucify him and drive the nails into his hands and his feet. We're all wicked at heart like that. Now, let's back up here and recycle things to the top. What? Why do we have this interlude about John the Baptist? Verse number four, or verse number one, rather, back in Matthew 14. If you go back there, at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, "This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him." So here is the guilty conscience of Herod beginning to work on him. All of this stuff that John preached about, all of this sin that he talked about, Herod knew that John the Baptist was right. He knew that he should repent, but instead he had John beheaded. I don't know if you've ever read the story of, that Edgar Allan Poe wrote of the telltale heart, the beating heart that the man couldn't get out of his head. That's the way Herod was. He could not get the beating heart of John the Baptist out of his head. It plagued him. He had killed this innocent man, this good man, a man of God. And so when Jesus came along, and and Herod heard about all the miracles that Jesus did and all the mighty works that were being done, he became convinced that this must be John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and he's come back, and all these mighty works are showing themselves in him. So he was guilt-ridden. He was convinced that it was John the Baptist not knowing that it was Jesus who was the Savior of the world. Now, I told you before that Herod knew Scripture. He knew the law and the prophets. And you know how he knew that? Because Herod was actually a Sadducee. That was one of the major major parties, religious parties at the time. Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians. Herod was a member of the Sadducees. And there's something that Sadducees don't believe, a couple things. They don't believe in spirits. And they don't believe that there's a resurrection of the dead. 
And so here you have a man that was so guilty that he started to believe in something that he didn't think was even possible, that somebody could rise from the dead. Now you may wonder, what's it all about? Why do we have this story? Well, we're in this long, protracted study of the life of Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew. The reason that we have it here is because of what Jesus taught in the 13th chapter. Do you remember how he taught about how hardened that people can become to the gospel? How that people, some of the ground is stony ground, and the gospel does not penetrate them. The stony ground is a hard heart. The gospel can be so clear, and sin can be so evident, and people will not repent. And this is an example of that. It's a practical demonstration of what Jesus taught in the parable of the sower and also in the parable of the tares. Now, there may, be, there may be someone here today that, that you're like this in a sense, that you're holding on to your sins. You're just not going to give them up. You know that these things have been preached against, but you've set your heart against God. You've set your heart against the gospel of Christ. And rather than to believe what Jesus says and believe what the Bible says and to have that matter settled and have the guilt taken away from you, you try to get rid of the guilt in another way. And the way that you try to do it is to shut out the gospel of Christ. Turn off the preacher when he preaches. Don't listen to anything that's said. Don't read the Bible. Never commit your life to Christ. That's what people do when their heart becomes hardened to the gospel of Christ. Instead of responding to that guilt and responding in repentance and faith, they just shut it all out and say, it's not for me. I won't pay attention to it. I don't want anything to do with that. And let me tell you, folks, how dangerous that is because that sets your path sets you on a path and keeps you on a path that ends up in utter destruction. You don't know how deep sin that you can go into. You don't know the depths of the wickedness of the human heart. And the Bible says exactly that. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. And you go on in your sin. And as you go on in your sin, the Bible says you treasure up wrath against the day of wrath. And just like Herod, You're going to pay a price for that. The best thing to do is to have all of your guilt washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the only way that sin can be washed away. It's the only way you can be clean. You have to confess that you have sinned, give up those sins, and trust Jesus Christ to save you from them. Now, you may be thinking about this story now, and you say, what wicked people these were, what cruel people they were, what vengeful people they were. What happened to them? Why does God allow things like this to happen? What happened to these people? Let me tell you the rest of the story. Number four is a righteous death versus a ruler's doom. Verse 12, Matthew 14, And his disciples came and took up the body, that is of John the Baptist, and buried it, and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. Now here is a mystery of sorts. And that is, Herod had perhaps one little ounce of decency that was left in him. He knew that John the Baptist preached the truth, and so when his, John's disciples came and wanted the body of, of, of John the Baptist, Herod allowed them to take that headless body and to give it a proper burial. And then the disciples went and told Jesus, and the word says Jesus went away alone for a while. Now we learn later, a little bit later, that when Jesus was to be crucified, that he was sent to Herod Antipas. Now, Herod 
thought that Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. And so Herod was anxious to see him and talk with him and find out what that was all about. And so he sent word for Jesus to come, but Jesus never went. Jesus never went to talk to him. In fact, these two never met until the time that Jesus was brought to trial just before he was crucified. And then Pilate sent Jesus to see Herod Antipas. And Herod the Antipas was glad to see him, the word of God says, and he began to ask Jesus all kinds of questions. And the Bible says that Jesus answered none of his questions. Jesus never even talked to him. Now, the Herod Antipas began to mock Jesus, and his soldiers mocked him. Let me ask you something about that. Is it actually possible that Jesus would not give a person the time of day? Herod Antipas had sinned. He had done these horrible things. Jesus would not answer him. He wouldn't give the king the time of day. Is it possible that you can sin to the degree that Jesus will not give you the time of day? You know my answer to that? I'm not going to try it. I'm not trying it. You, you do what you think. I'm not going to try it. The thing to do is confess sin, bring it to Christ, and be forgiven of that sin. Because as long as you're willing to receive him, he's willing to accept you. So Jesus didn't answer. The, the Herod and his soldiers mocked him, and they sent him back to Pilate. And the word of God says that Pilate and Herod became friends on that day. Before, they were enemies of one another. But they became friends because they had a mutual hatred for Jesus. And isn't that the way the world is? People in the world can get along so well with each other if they have something in common, and what they have in common is hatred of Jesus. You, you bring religion into the picture, bring Jesus Christ, and there's universal hatred of him. So what happened to Herod? Well, this is kind of an interesting part, too. You remember that Herodias married Herod because she had a lust for power. Now, the Scripture calls Herod a king, but actually that's the King James Version uh, this is the word that's used, but it's a little bit generous concerning who Herod was. Herod was actually the ruler of Galilee, which would be like being the governor of Rhode Island. I mean, it's not much space. And so he wasn't a great king, a great ruler over a lot of people. But it turned out that Herod Antipas' other brother, Philip, the one, not the one that he married, uh, not Herodias' former husband, but his other brother, Philip, the one that the kingdoms were split among when Herod the Great died, that Philip died. And he controlled the northernmost portions of Palestine. And so when he died, Herodias saw this great opportunity to get the land that Herod, or rather that Philip ruled over. And so she convinced Herod to go to Rome to talk to the emperor Caligula and have him give him the territory that was formerly ruled by Philip. And then Herod would become king and then Herodias would become the queen. But Herod didn't want to do that. So what did Herodias do? She just nagged him. And she kept nagging him, just like Delilah nagged Samson until he finally did what she wanted him to do. So Herod decided, okay, I'll go, I'll go. If you insist, I'll go, just to get her off his back. And so he went to see Caligula. But the only problem is that Caligula had already given this territory to, uh, to another one of, of Herod's sons. He, he'd given that to Agrippa. Well, Agrippa found out what Herod was up to, and he wasn't about to have this territory taken away from him. And so as Caligula was, or, or as Herod was on his way to see Caligula in Rome, the Caesar, uh, Agrippa sent 
a fast runner or a, a servant or somebody to get to Rome before Herod did, and they had a plan. And they would lie to Caligula and tell him that the reason that Herod wanted this extra territory is because he was about to mount a revolt. And he wanted to turn against the Caesar. Now, the Caesars were always afraid that somebody was behind them was going to kill them. Just ask Julius Caesar about Brutus. I mean, there's somebody always wanting to kill them. So Caligula was not up for that. And so he said, that's not going to happen. So he didn't give the territory to Herod. Instead, he exiled Herod to Spain. And in those days... Being sent to Spain was worse than being sent to Bakersfield. And so he he was sent to Spain. And it would be okay. I I suppose it would be okay if he went to Spain and Herodias stayed behind. But Caligula did him the great favor of sending her with him. And so here is Herod with no power, nothing at all, and this nagging woman that he has to live with all the time, Herodias. And you you probably know what she was saying. If he just did what I said, if we just did this, if we just did that, if you, you, know, you know how it is. Just nag him to death probably till the day that he died. So here's where the title of my sermon comes in. You have two peas in the pod that end up being just two peas in a pod. As far as they were concerned, this was the best that they could hope for. Being exiled to Spain, that was the high point in their life because as Christ rejectors, they were going to spend a day in God's court And then it wouldn't be John the Baptist's head that rolls. It'll be theirs. They were mockers of the righteous king and of his servants. So when that day comes, you know what's going to happen? John the Baptist is going to get his head back. And he's going to be in a glorified body. And he'll stand there in that great cloud of witnesses. And he'll go, thumbs down on all those who have rejected Christ as their Savior. Now the question for you today is what do you do about your guilt? The scripture says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.19, it says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. All the world is guilty. So what are you going to do with your guilt? Do you ignore that? When your conscience starts to talk to you about your sin, what do you do? Do you you just shut out the preacher? Do you just shut down the gospel? The Bible says you don't have to live with guilt. You You don't have to live with all of that guilt on you because the cross of Jesus Christ is where all that guilt is taken away. It's where the burden of sin is lifted from you. The Bible says that you can leave that burden at the foot of the cross You can trust Jesus now and have all of your burdens lifted. And I can promise you this, it's better than being a king or a queen of any territory in this world. The Bible teaches us that we become priests and rulers with God Almighty himself. The best thing to do is turn to Jesus, get rid of the guilt, get rid of the sin, repent, confess, and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he promises everyone who will do that you will be saved from your sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, this, this story that we've read today, quite involved, and we see how wicked that the heart can be. And there's probably people in our congregation today that have seen, uh, surely have experienced the wickedness of the world and see the kinds of things that people will do. 
And we just have to stand back and say that if it wasn't for the grace of God, we could be there too. Lord, Lord, we, we thank you that when we trusted you as Savior, you removed our sins from us, took them far as away as the east is from the west. You, you, you've forgotten all of our sins because we have our faith in you. Lord, I, I just pray that there would be someone here this morning, that they would recognize that, and they would know that Jesus died on the cross to save people from their sins, and all of their guilt, all of their sin can be forgiven, and heaven can be their home. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to some heart today. And, though, and for Christians who have sin in their lives, and they've just kind of turned their backs on what the preacher has to say and how the Word of God warns us against that, Lord, I pray that you'd work in their hearts as well. Clean up that mess so we can be righteous servants that serve the King. Bless in this time as we sing today. Speak to hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Don't stand, please.